Good evening and welcome to the first of the Shapiro Public Lectures for this academic session. My name is Professor Jim Hughes. I'm in the Government Department. And this evening uh, we have two distinguished speakers who are going to be considering or reconsidering the fate of the Orange Revolution in the light of the recent election results in Ukraine. It seems to me Ukrainian politics... Uh, uh, given the election results, reaffirms the idea that we all deserve a second chance in life. The Orange Revolution seems to be getting a, a second chance. Uh, after all, in late 2004, great expectations were raised about the potential for change in Ukraine. And it all seemed to fall apart in tears amid a lot of personal and political acrimony. So we could ask ourselves, what's changed? We have the same actors forming a new Orange Coalition, and uh, perhaps the speakers will be able to tell us what's different this time around. So on my right, let me introduce the speakers. On my right, we have Dr. Gwendolyn Zasa, who is a reader in the politics of Central and Eastern Europe at the University of Oxford, and uh, has recently published uh, a monograph on the Crimean question, Identity, Transition, and Conflict. Uh, which has recently been published by Harvard uh, Ukrainian uh, Institute as part of their Ukrainian Studies series. And on my left, we have Dr. Andrew Wilson of the School of Slavonic and East European Studies. Uh, Andrew uh, published a very timely uh, book about the Orange Revolution in early 2006 with Yale University Press. Um, so I think... Uh, Let's hand over to our speakers immediately, and we'll have Gwen first, and then Andrew. Both speakers will talk for approximately 20 minutes each, and then we take questions from the floor. Gwen. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation to come back to the LSE so quickly, and it's uh, particularly nice to be speaking in the seminar series that I was involved in organizing for so many years, so it's nice to, to have the, the chance to be on the other side. Um, as you, not all of you might be keen followers of the um, intricacies of, of Ukrainian electoral politics, um, I thought we, we better start small and then sort of widen the discussion as we go along. And I want to um, start with these elections, the 30th of September 2007, um, put uh, the elections a bit in context, um, say what I think are the most noteworthy results, um, talk a little bit about the aftermath. Um, before then, going on to address the main question um, today, what's left of the Orange Revolution? And I'd like to, um, if possible, point to a few um, legacies of the Orange Revolution which might lie in between what Jim just presented as the extremes, the big expectations of 2004 um, and then the um, uh, big disappointment that um, seemed to follow rather quickly. Uh, before then, ending up with a few more general remarks about um, Ukraine's transition and how it fits our understanding of um, uh, post-communist transitions. Um, first of all, about these elections, I think to begin with, um, as a context, it's important to keep in mind that these were pre-term um, elections. I mean, some of the coverage these elections got um, seemed to uh, perhaps gloss over this a bit. I mean, there was no, uh, per se, no political necessity for these elections. They are, in fact, um, 
an outcome of uh, primarily unfinished constitutional business that's been um, left over from the Orange Revolution, which manifested itself in an um, uh, increasing standoff between President Yushchenko and Prime Minister Yanukovych. Um, and that's culminated in the President dissolving Parliament in April of this year. Um, this was presented, and in particular the President presented it, um, as pulling the, the country back from the brink of a crisis, um, a constitutional crisis. And at that point, there was something to that. But um, uh, the, the political setup had got to that point um, uh, also because of political choices that were made. And President Yushchenko uh, played a key part in this. After the elections, the parliamentary elections of 2006, um, there was uh, already an opportunity to revive um, uh, whatever might have been left from the uh, Orange uh, Coalition. Um, and it seemed that the, the rivalry and the tension between uh, Yulia Tymoshenko and uh, President Yushchenko did not, did not allow this to happen. And so in order to, to present uh, Yushchenko's final decision to uh, form a de facto or informal coalition with uh, his former arch-rival Yanukovych and making him prime minister, um, that was not uh, per se a necessity. That was a choice and probably, as he found out very quickly, a very bad choice. Um, also, what I find noteworthy about these elections is we, we seem to almost discuss them as if they, they were presidential elections and not parliamentary elections. Um, so we don't necessarily see the parties or blocs so much, but we focus very much on the, on the key actors. And as, as Jim just said, um, they are very much uh, very familiar actors. Um, in terms of um, uh, the results, uh, as, you, as you might know, uh, the uh, confirmed uh, results uh, um, the, the party of regions, uh, Prime Minister Yanukovych's party, um, slightly improved on its 2006 uh, result and scored 34.4%, followed very closely by Timoshenko's bloc with uh, 30, just under 31%. Um, three other parties made it into parliament, um, the pro-presidential uh, bloc, our Ukraine self-defense, uh, the Communist Party, and uh, Litvin's block um, just made it in. And what I find particularly noteworthy is, on the one hand, the extent of um, Timoshenko's success. Um, it, we, we might have expected that she would do um, better than last year, in particular because um, she wasn't um, such a prominent player in this uh, rather frustrating standoff between um, President Yushchenko and Prime Minister Yanukovych. Um, but I think nobody had predicted really how well she would do. If you look uh, more closely at her um, election results, she improved really throughout um, the country, and she also made some, um, uh, however still modest, inroads into um, some of the eastern uh, regions of Ukraine. However, there it didn't change the, the balance, and the party of regions is still strongly um, in the lead. But she improved overall from 22% in 2006 to over 30% now. That's a significant increase. Um, the second noteworthy um, result is that um, very few parties made the uh, quite low um, electoral threshold of 3%. This is um, one of the lowest, possibly even the lowest in, in Europe. And so you could say this looks like party consolidation, something usually people tell us is a, is a sign of, of um, democratic consolidation. I'll come back to this in a moment. I think it's not quite that straightforward. Um, what is tied to... Um, the, the number of parties is also 
um, sort of they are spread. So they're two um, quite small parties by now, the Communist Party and this uh, Litvin bloc, which is quite, quite hard to position clearly politically. That's really um, the strategy of that bloc, if you like. Um, but nevertheless, the role of small parties has been um, decisive, and it has been decisive through absence as well as through presence. Uh, the Socialist Party, as you might have um, uh, heard, did not cross uh, the 3% threshold, um, just stayed under lease, under low, uh, below it. Um, and had it made, made it into Parliament, the current arrangement um, would look potentially quite different. And so it's an incredibly narrow um, electoral result and the very narrow lead that um, Timoshenko's bloc plus our Ukraine self-defense have is by and large due to the Socialist Party not making it into um, Parliament. So that's um, not necessarily such a strong um, starting point for, for reviving um, the coalition. And because the Socialist Party didn't make it into Parliament, the other small party, Litvin's bloc, um, became, um, or has become somewhat more important. And uh, Timoshenko and, and our Ukraine um, self-defense would, would um, increase their slight majority, a majority of literally two seats, um, to a slightly more comfortable majority um, of, of 248 seats um, if uh, Litvin's bloc could be brought in. But as of yet, there is no um, uh, uh, indication of that really happening. Um, in terms of um, the immediate aftermath, what was... Um, there, what was noteworthy there is that uh, Yushchenko seemed to be going back on something he had uh, committed to in the run-up to the election, um, namely a coalition with uh, uh, Timoshenko. So it looked, although as of um, um, yesterday, it looks as if a coalition is shaping up, um, and interestingly enough, this very narrow coalition of the two forces, Litvin has still not uh, been brought into this. Um, nevertheless, what, is, what happened immediately after the election is uh, the president started talking again about a coalition of national unity. So this is quite a recurrent theme in Ukrainian politics. Whenever there is a political crisis, and there have, to be, have been quite a few, the instinct seems to be to bring everybody into, back into the boat. And even now, calling a preterm elections, um, it seems uh, almost even more ironic not to, uh, or to potentially disregard the election result by, by bringing everybody back in. Now, this, this seemed more relevant last week than it does um, today, uh, but nevertheless an, an interesting um, intermezzo. Um, I mentioned that the, um, one of the key issues behind or what, what brought about this um, election um, is the unfinished constitutional um, business. And what I mean here is um, Ukraine really being a country that um, has been characterized or the transition has been characterized by constitutional ambiguity throughout uh, you might recall that it took Ukraine longer than, um, than other um, post-communist, post-Soviet countries to arrive at its first um, constitution in 1996. Um, so a lot of ambiguity in the early days. And uh, the constitutional reform, reform process hasn't really stopped um, throughout. So Ukraine seems to be a, a case where this, um, the suggestion that constitution making, making happens early on in transition is, is, is not really um, uh, holding up. The main problem with the Constitution is uh, the current one uh, that entered into force in 2000, early 2006 um, is that um, it was put together in haste at the height of the Orange Revolution, so at the height of a political crisis. Um, this is probably not um, the, the, the best and most sound constitution a country can have. And it, has, it was a compromise deal that paved the way 
uh, for uh, a rerun of the second round of the presidential elections at the time. And the problem is it has never been reviewed, so there's never been a, a constitutional review process, um, mainly because the constitutional court has, been, um, has not been functional for so long. And when it finally got together again, all the judges were appointed earlier this year, it was so politicized by both um, Prime Minister Yanukovych and President Yushchenko that it could not, could not function. So again, uh, the Ukrainian politicians negotiated a way out of a political crisis by calling uh, these new elections and agreeing on these elections. Um, but once again, it was not done uh, by constitutional means or legal means. Um, again, this does not, I think, per se bode well for um, democratic consolidation. Um, if we move on to the question, what's left of the Orange Revolution, and I see um, some positive changes, especially if you look at um, the development of the media, if you look at the electoral process, um, uh, possibly also because there are so many elections, Ukraine seems to be getting better at it. Um, and this also involves um, serious um, behavioral change. So these election results, um, and already the ones of 2006, were not called into question in particular by, for example, Yanukovych himself. So I think this is um, um, a, a, a positive development. Um, I'm not going to engage in sort of conceptual definitions of what's, what is a revolution and what's not a revolution. I think we can agree that by uh, many definitions, in particular indicators of political and social change, um, uh, the event is a, is a misnomer or this, this title is a misnomer. But perhaps the title there sounds rather pessimistic, and it was put in place when, when it looked um, that uh, the uh, preterm elections in uh, 2007 would return Ukraine to more or less exactly where it was um, in uh, 2006 um, after the elections. So it seems almost that a, another year and a half has been lost, um, and another de facto, if not de euro, coalition between Yushchenko and Yanukovych seemed quite likely. But as I said, that has not happened now. Where I see important legacies um, of the Orange Revolution, which are um, uh, more problematic, so I'm not going to focus on the, on the positive developments so much, and I'm going to look at some of the legacies which are um, uh, a, a bit in between the, the extreme expectations and disappointments. I mentioned the, the cons ongoing constitutional crisis already, um, and I'll just give you one example um, without kind of boring you with too many constitutional details. But the key problem uh, with the Constitution as it stands um, is that it has moved powers from the President to the Parliament and to the, to the Prime Minister, but it is still a mixed system. So what was a, uh, a mixed system giving more powers to the President has become a mixed system giving more powers to the Prime Minister, the Parliament, um, but this leaves um, a lot of... Um, uh, or the relationship in particular between the cabinet and the president and between the parliament, the cabinet and the president, um, are very ambiguous. Uh, for example, the president retains the right to um, appoint the foreign minister and the defense minister, um, but somewhere in the constitution it also says that um, the, the cabinet and the prime minister oversee the country's foreign policy. So this is more ambiguous than it was before. Um, and uh, the dismissal of former Minister Tarasiuk um, uh, in, in December, and he finally resigned in, in January this year, illustrates this, um, uh, um, this tension. Um, so the spheres are even less clearly uh, demarcated now, and if anything, it provides uh, for whoever is Prime Minister uh, quite a bit of scope to, uh, to chip away further at, at the President's powers. I'm not advocating a presidential model, but Ukraine is currently... Um, uh, 
well, has since 2006 in particular um, demonstrated um, uh, the, uh, uh, the problems of not having a clear system. So whether it's a presidential system or a parliamentary system, but something in between that's ambiguous um, causes a lot of problems. A second legacy of the uh, Orange Revolution is that it is always difficult, of course, to translate um, a revolutionary moment or a crisis politics into normal politics uh, or into a political program. And the Orange Revolution gave, in particular, um, the president great legitimacy, although, as I just said, the constitutional changes at that moment in time pointed in a, in a different direction. Um, and I think we can also um, agree that President Yushchenko has not um, delivered on, on many things that one might have reasonably um, expected of him. I already mentioned a few bad political choices he made. Um, related to that, uh, the events of 2004 highlighted the role of a few key individuals, and uh, we still uh, um, see the same people uh, play an important role in Ukrainian politics. So if anything, the Orange Revolution has increased um, the personalization of Ukrainian politics, it seems. And this leads to what I started with, that every election seems to, to, to come along as almost a presidential election. Uh, a further point, uh, there has been, or well, there was, of course, impressive societal um, mobilization during the Orange Revolution. Um, but what goes with that is also, it was not only a clear-cut mobilization, it also led to a much, a much more open and deeper political polarization of the country. And this is really what the, the election result speaks to uh, most, most clearly. So we can say, say I think, that um, Ukraine has, has never been politically more, more polarized, and this comes out of these two, uh, two almost um, equal, in terms of size and number of votes they got, political forces. Uh, and further, finally, um, the Orange Revolution um, sort of changed the, the party landscape of Ukraine. Um, it has made it uh, very hard for the Communist Party and now also for the Socialist Party um, to um, stick around. They were seriously weakened by the Orange Revolution. As you might remember, they both supported um, the, uh, the, the Orange cause, um, but then found it hardest to uh, incorporate or to actually form um, some sort of a um, consensus with um, someone like Timoshenko when she was um, prime minister. Uh, and also the rivalry between the two uh, leftist forces um, has cost them both votes. Both jumped um, ship in 2006 to join Yanukovych's coalition, um, but in particular uh, the leader of the Socialist Party, Moroz, um, uh, uh, lost a lot of support while he was the, the Speaker of, of, of Parliament. Um, but nevertheless, although they've seen, these small parties have seen their, their vote reduced, they remain decisive, as I said um, before, and particularly in this increasingly uh, polarized um, environment. And so finally, um, a few remarks um, before my 20 minutes are up. Um, what do these elections say about um, Ukraine's um, democracy and um, democratic consolidation? And, and I think Andy has some, some thoughts about this too, so maybe, maybe we'll, we'll kick off a bit of a debate on this. Um, you, you may all be familiar with various indicators of um, uh, democratic consolidation and what they all share is that um, they're all um, uh, equally unsatisfying, it seems. And if anything, Ukraine points to, to the weaknesses in these categories that we, that we use to measure progress and when transition moves on to consolidation and even harder to pinpoint when this consolidation finally ends and something else like normal politics starts. 
Uh, one of the kind of most basic criteria used is often this two turnover test suggested by Huntington, so electoral alternation. And you could see that at presidential level, you could say, well, you can point to 2004, um, this would have been sort of a two turnover um, test. But at the same time, in a system that now um, highlights the role of the prime minister, it's not so easy. Even if we start in 2004, which is a skewed starting point, uh, we don't seem to be quite, quite there yet. Um, other indicators like, for example, Rusto's famous um, uh, criteria of what he called a habituation phase of um, democratic consolidation, he pointed to um, the practice of democracy, a growing confidence in new rules and norms, and uh, the development of parties that effectively link elites and uh, the masses. I think we can all agree that the first criteria, the practice of democracy, in particular the electoral process, has come um, some way. Um, and uh, there might be growing confidence in the rules that go with that. Um, but at the same time, there can hardly be any confidence in, in the actors playing the game within these roles if we take into consideration um, this continued standoff between Yanukovych and Yushchenko last year. And also the development of parties linking elites and masses. On the one hand, there seems to be more consolidation um, going on, but at the same time, um, it has also increased the, the polarization um, of society and there are still, I think, big question marks behind how consolidated both groups, um, Tomoshenko's bloc as well as the party of region, how consolidated they are as parties or do they still function primarily as, as big um, blocks. Um, another criteria could be to distinguish between, um, like Linz and Stepan, for example, between structural, attitudinal or behavioral criteria. And here I just want to point to um, the behavioral criteria as I said at the beginning, somebody like Yanukovych accepting the election results and so electoral fraud um, taken out of, more or less taken out of the, the electoral process is certainly a behavioral change. But then again, this instinct to um, go back to uh, finding political uh, deals rather than uh, letting the vote translate into, into either one type of government or into, into another, um, I think points into, in a different direction. Um, so I think... Um, uh, what Ukraine highlights quite well is how, how difficult it is to, to uh, fit consolidation processes into um, these categories. Moreover, and I, I end with that, I mean, Ukraine is, um, while it doesn't clearly point into, into any direction of, it, of where its own development will be going or which, which other categories we should be using, it's often, uh, from a political science perspective, I find um, a, a nice corrective for very common assumptions about um, transition and consolidation, as I just said, but also uh, potential for conflict or regional and ethnic um, diversity and state building. Um, there's a suggestion um, in the literature on transition that if you are a very heterogeneous, diverse, either regionally, uh, linguistically, ethnically diverse country, uh, you will hardly be able to avoid an ethnification of transition politics. I think on the whole, and here um, um, Crimea comes in as a useful example, but it's only, the, it's only one extreme of the, of the story. Ukraine has actually been um, quite successful at state building, despite of what we, what we hear about um, ethnic and language issues resurfacing in the um, electoral campaigns. And they will stay there, and they will always come up in the electoral campaigns. It would be strange if they didn't in a, in a so diverse country as Ukraine. But on the whole, this diversity has acted as a check on policies, so it, on politics. It prevents extremist um, uh, um, uh, policies that we might have seen in, in other um, transition countries. 
However, as so often before, Ukraine is also demonstrating that that check can at some point turn into um, stagnation stagnation or extreme polarization that's quite hard to turn into effective um, policy making. And I'll leave it here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gwen. And you'll have opportunity to put some questions to Gwen after Andrew. Thanks. Always a pleasure to be back at the LSE. Jim didn't mention that I did my PhD here a few years ago uh, in the early 90s. Um, this is the fourth time I've spoken about the elections, uh, but for this academic audience, uh, I'll try and do the reverse to Gwen. So instead of starting with smaller themes and ending with big, uh, I'll talk mainly about bigger themes, i.e. what the elections tell us about uh, ongoing discussions in the academic literature, such as it is about Ukraine. Under four main headings, um, firstly some very brief remarks about democratisation and this two-turnover test. Uh, secondly, constitutional issues. Thirdly, favourite topic of political technology. And fourthly, um, the old question of regions, regional identities within Ukraine and this ethnicisation of transition politics. Um, at the end, I may have time for some brief remarks about um, uh, more short-term forecasts uh, in the, immediate aftermath, in the immediate aftermath of the elections. So firstly, this two-turnover test, um, I always saw it at heart, really, as a political culture test. Um, mathematically, once you've had two turnovers, um, everybody has, if you assume a two-party system, both sides have swapped. So both had experience of government and opposition and uh, uh, neither has the right uh, to expect to continue in one role permanently. So they accommodate each other. Uh, in Ukraine, really, the process is the opposite. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Orange Revolution, the Orange parties were given, obviously, the chance to govern. In 2006, it was a party of regions' term. Both sides monopolised power to an extent. Um, so the two turnovers that, that might be more relevant are firstly the um, brief experience of Orange government up to 2005 uh, and then the period of Regions government from July 2006 to April of this year. I, both main parties reversed into this two turnover situation uh, it's not that they now trust each other, it's the opposite. They don't trust each other. Um, Regions didn't trust the Orange parties because of what happened in 2005 uh, and 2004. Uh, and the president in particular um, grew um, resentful of the aggrandizement of party of Regions after July 2006. So although the president provoked the current crisis with his dissolution degree in April, uh, the key event moving us forward to elections in September was the May agreement to hold those elections and for all parties to take part in those elections. Although Timoshenko, was not, uh, although Timoshenko had been the main force pressing for new, new elections, she was not party to that agreement. Uh, the parties who made the agreement were the moderates, usually business moderates, 
um, in our Ukraine and business moderates in regions. The two parties which made the agreement had an agreement, an informal agreement, that they would govern uh, in some way together after the election. Uh, this was option A for most elites. It may still be the private option of many elites. Um, Timoshenko's strong, very strong uh, performance in second place in the election upset these calculations. Um, it, it was a, not just a redistribution of forces within the Orange camp. She crossed regional boundaries, as Gwen pointed out, and her total net gain in vote uh, was, uh, if it was nine or so points, only two or three of those could be explained by redistribution within the orange camp, our Ukraine having roughly trod water. This changed the primary calculation then of the business elites on both sides uh, and may render the launch of an orange government, which seems likely tomorrow, I'll finish by talking about that, uh, a very short-term um, affair. But the point of the elections was to proceed to that uh, coalition arrangement via rebooting the political system. So yes, the elections were early, but they were in a way necessary as a means of proceeding via this reverse two-turnover test to a more kind of cooperative arrangement in government. Secondly, the Constitution. Certain informal practices have been developing as a result of this uh, May agreement. I wholly, uh, wholeheartedly agree with my colleague Paul Danieri and would strongly recommend his recent book, Understanding Ukrainian Politics. Uh, I'll, I'll just quote from that briefly, page 12. Uh, the fundamental imbalance of raw political power has been the underlying source of the more immediate problems in Ukrainian government. And then he goes on later to say, the constitutional changes agreed in 2004 and introduced in 2006 have failed to address this problem by achieving a proper distribution of and balance of power. So formally, de facto, the constitution does not, uh, the, the, the amended constitution does not work as well as it should. Instead of properly separating powers and establishing checks and balances between those powers, what is involved instead, and more on a de facto level, uh, as a consequence of the um, uh, May Agreement, is more a system of balanced partisanship. Instead of institutions being independent, and Gwen mentioned the Constitutional Court, uh, informally both parties have uh, appointed their partisans to this body and transferred their deadlocked partisanship to them. This is most obviously true of the Constitutional Court, which has been completely unable to function since its um, re-staffing last year. It's also true of the Central Election Commission, where a similar principle was um, followed. One side appointed eight, another appointed seven. Supposedly there was a neutral chairman, but uh, a well-grounded fear that instead of 
an independent institution, this would be, um, uh, there would be a system of territorial division. One side would look, look after its region and the other would look after its. And indeed, to a certain extent, this happened in the election. Though other countervailing forces, particularly the mass media, um, held that in some, to some degree in check. There is it is extremely unlikely that there will be constitutional reform before the next presidential election due in 2009 or 2010. In part because all the main actors do not know which positions they will be occupying over the next two or three years uh, and therefore cannot um, push powers in the direction of the offices that they are most likely to occupy. So Ukraine faces another two, three years at least of constitutional malfunction. Uh, it is sorely in need of a mini-project of reform, however, particularly in the judicial system, uh, particularly without a, a functioning constitutional court at all. But we'll return clearly to the issue of uh, constitutional reform at the next election in 2009. Thirdly, political technology. It was hoped by many supporters of the Orange Revolution that political technology would be done away with after 2004. Uh, that in relatively freer, fairer, more open politics, the more um, disreputable, covert methods of the so-called political technologists would be impossible. Now, many of them have certainly become more difficult, particularly um, the, uh, the launching of or takeover of parties as um, fake political projects. However, in an election with 21 parties, uh, almost all of the smaller parties, i.e. the 16 that Gwen hasn't mentioned, i.e. apart from our Ukraine, um, Party of Regions, the Timoshenko bloc, the Socialists and Communists. All the other parties were, to a degree, political technology projects, i.e. fake. All parties played the game of uh, launching fake or clone parties to uh, take a bite out of their opponent's vote, including the Timoshenko bloc, incidentally, um, businessman close to the Timoshenko bloc financed a fake communist party whose purpose was to take out the mainstream communist party and assumed likely coalition partner of regions. Now in some ways this is depressing that the tactic is still so prevalent. Uh, on the other hand uh, it is quite clear that um, uh, a relatively free media is the best antidote to this kind of political technology. None of these parties managed to gain uh, even 1% of the vote, apart from one, the Vitrenko bloc. The, uh, the fake Communist Party, for example, only won 0.3. That said, a lot of money was spent on them, a lot of uh, political energy wasted. In theory, there ought to have been a learning effect that politicians ought to be used to a free media and the difficulty of launching these kind of projects Perhaps the explanation lies in the likely closeness of the result. It was worth trying. 
given that um, small parties and very small percentages of the votes were likely to um, decide the election and did. With one big exception, the Litvin bloc is clearly a political project of this type. It is not what it claims to be a neutral party. It was rather bizarrely described in the Washington Times as a neutral, fresh force. certainly wasn't fresh. Litvin has been around for a long time. He was um, chairman of parliament from 2002 to 2006. And it's certainly not neutral. It was financed mainly by a um, member of the Party of Regents. And it was assumed that the bloc would sell its support to the highest bidder, which is exactly what it has tried to do since the 30th of September. Um, it's interesting, therefore, that it is being excluded from the coalition to be announced tomorrow. I.e. its uh, venality and demands in private have been too much for the Orange parties, but without it, they won't have a decent majority. Fourthly, regions. Uh, regionalism and regional voting patterns are deeply entrenched still in Ukraine. Um, it would be crazy to say otherwise. On one side, uh, what is most remarkable is the stability of orange voting. There have been at least three occasions now on which a slim orange majority has emerged. 2004, 2006, 2007 and arguably four if you count the 2002 parliamentary elections as well. Orange voters have in fact been extraordinarily patient, giving their uh, leaders not a second chance but a third chance in government. Ditto with um, the Party of Regents. With a slightly shorter history, it, um, it is now entrenched in its region. In fact, it's interesting that its overall vote uh, levelled out in East Ukraine uh, in the September elections. I, it was down in Donetsk and up in other regions, more peripheral regions uh, like um, Odessa or Kharkiv. Those of you who are interested could consult um, an idea put forward by Valentin Yakushik and others, another LSE veteran from many years ago, that there were in fact at least two revolutions in 2004. Uh, there was an orange revolution um, in western central Ukraine, but also a solidification of regional consciousness and regional voting in blue and white east Ukraine as well. He actually says there were two and a half revolutions because there was a civic revolution which uh, in theory can unite the two. Um, it's uh, the solidity of that third revolution is in doubt. So you have entrenched and repeated um, voting behaviour. So in this particular sense, the Orange Revolution is still very much with us. Um, this is not too unusual. Um, if Hillary Clinton becomes US President, um, then America will have had the Bush and the Clintons for 24 or 28 years. Um, and as Gwen said, this is 
uh, still a relatively short period, but pers- the same personalities are around with us and likely to stay. There are some indications, though, that we may be moving towards post-orange politics. The Litvin party was a fake third force and arguably, in fact, underperformed because it was a fake. Uh, there is clearly an electoral space for that kind of um, third force in Ukrainian politics. Uh, and the Litvin bloc uh, will certainly find competition for that political ground in the near future. In fact, some of President Yushchenko's advisers argue that he himself should occupy that space as a kind of arbiter between populist Yushchenko and um, East Ukrainian regions. Other thing to look out for is Timoshenko's politics, which has already uh, become, to a degree, post-orange. She's ditched the colour. She ditched that a long time ago, back in 2006, uh, and the symbolism of the revolution, and is becoming much more of a... Well, a cross between an East, East European populist um, on the one hand and the person who best understands the power of the anti-oligarch card in, Eastern, in, in the former Soviet space. This makes Ukraine a very different country to uh, Russia. In Russia, whether fairly or not, it was largely the Kremlin that played the anti-oligarch card in the last election cycle, whereas Timoshenko is, of course, uh, mainly an opposition politician. And it was this kind of pol- politics, uh, populist, anti-oligarch, um, that allowed her to cross regional boundaries um, in this election. It also led to a, a, a considerable amount of um, policy soft-pedaling on her behalf, Now, I have some sympathy with that. If if you want to cross regional boundaries in Ukraine, then you have to um, uh, put certain issues like NATO and the the role of the Russian language into the background. She did so. um, And whether it really suits her political interests to become prime minister again um, is an open question. Two minutes. So two minutes for the uh, short-term questions. Uh, today is a day of national mourning in Ukraine after the uh, explosions in Dnepropetrovsk, so that has delayed the announcement of a coalition which is assumed to be due tomorrow. Uh, the coalition is between our Ukraine and Timoshenko bloc. Um, the division of government posts, but not the position of prime minister, that's assumed to be Timoshenko, has been announced. Um, Timoshenko bloc will get mainly the economic positions, the Ukraine bloc, the uh, Siloviki, the so-called force ministries, and the so-called humanitarian ministries. Um, but this coalition will only have a majority of two. There are no positions in that putative division of government posts for the Litvin bloc, uh, and it's extra 20 seats. Uh, so unless some kind of informal system of external support can, is, uh, can be put in place, um, the putative coalition's majority is so small it may not even survive the first hurdle. Um, Party of Regions has 
uh, openly said that uh, 10 or 20 um, MPs are likely to vote against Timoshenko, rather hinting that it will bribe them. Um, but it may not need to. There, are, there was a, an open letter circulated by Yuri Yekanorov, former Prime Minister, a week ago, urging both sides not to support Timoshenko. So there may not even be a majority to appoint her at the first hurdle as Prime Minister. Um, unless there are other um, buttressing mechanisms in place. As Gwen mentioned, the President has stated his pre preference, which is for some kind of shirka, uh, a broad system. It doesn't necessarily mean a, for a broad formal coalition, but for some other mechanism of bringing the other parties into the, uh, uh, into the political game. So that may be part of a further announcement to come. Uh, I, this is, if this is the option to be chosen, um, it has many problems. In fact, none of the overall coalitions are problem-free. Um, I won't go into the problems with the other alternatives, but um, it is unlikely that an Orange Coalition this time will last. Um, so it may, in fact, be a move in gesture politics. Um, the blame game. The two parties are competing for the Orange electorate, uh, which clearly stated its preference for a renewed Orange government, so whoever... Um, uh, prevents that happening is likely to um, pay a heavy price electorally. Um, I also had some thoughts on the nature of the Orange Revolution, but I'll save them for questions. Thank you very much. Well, I'll take questions from the floor. Uh, just let me remind you that this event is uh, recorded and will be available for public consumption as a podcast on the LSE website. So bear that in mind when you ask your questions, please. Yes. Um, I'm Rokas Grauskas. I'm from LSE. Um, and I'd like to pose two questions for both of the speakers. Um, firstly, in your opinion, were there any um, foreign actors who played their role in the elections? In other words, did the actions of, of foreign countries influence the outcome of, of, of the elections? And uh, secondly, um, how do you think the results of these elections will influence um, the path of integration of Ukraine to transatlantic um, structures, namely, namely the EU and NATO? Thank you. Uh, shall I take the phone? Uh, the, role, the role of foreign actors, uh, first of all, much less visible than in previous elections, uh, including Russia. Um, Russia has, despite a lot of bluster in the immediate aftermath of the Orange Revolution uh, and a lot of talk about uh, American destabilization that many Russians themselves only half believed. Um, Russia sat down and rethought its strategy quite carefully. Um, 
it still operates and still exercises influence in Ukraine, but um, much more carefully, much more um, covertly. Um, so some of this is soft power in, in, in the sense that we understand it in the West, um, particularly um, the way that the Russian media is used. Um, overtly supporting one or two candidates like Vitrenko, who was ever-present on Russian media, um, and implicitly supporting others. But there are uh, some more worrying and covert um, activities as well. Uh, Just as one example, some of Timoshenko's business supporters are facing... um, uh, pressure originating from Russia, um, i.e., uh, drop Timoshenko and the pressure will stop. Uh, particularly um, Kostyantin Zhivago, Yulia's Dr. Zhivago, as the joke normally goes, um, who is the main financier of her block now, uh, but whose ownership of Poltava or mine is under legal challenge from two business groups linked to the Kremlin. Uh, The West, on the other hand, um, I have less knowledge of America, but uh, to my knowledge, the West uh, tried to stay, uh, were slightly shocked by and tried to stay neutral after the April dissolution, um, hoping for a kind of constitutional way forward. Um, I won't say anything about America because I haven't been there for a while. Okay, just um, a few... Do you want to say something too about the influence on integration? Yes, can I I make one comment on the first question too? Um, uh, I was very surprised to, to read an article, I think it was in The Guardian a few days after the elections, that presented the Ukrainian election result as something the West had once again bought. And, and it, uh, as far as I could see, was not written by anybody with, with any particular political agenda um, in mind um, or any roots either way. Um, so, and it, it went on to describe a, a rather complicated um, conspiracy of, of um, uh, what uh, sort of various uh, Western funds had done to, to get this result, in particular Timoshenko's result. And it sounded so complicated to me. I think, I mean, sometimes maybe when we study these countries or look at them, um, maybe the most obvious um, uh, thing is missed us right in front of our eyes. And I think there's so compelling domestic reasons for this result. Um, there will have been um, interference, as I agree with Andrew, it's not been, of course, of the kind um, that we saw previously. Um, there's certainly, and I am also not in a position to speculate how much has come in from where, um, but it seems there are, there are very compelling domestic reasons for this um, result. Um, and, um, I mean, just one illustration that I, I think is almost a, um, sort of a nice one uh, or uh, uh, almost um, makes us uh, maybe laugh, um, all the main contenders by now get very slick PR advice from, from the West and have hired their, their Western advisors and, and probably um, Yanukovych even more than, than, than the others. And it seemed almost uh, we were watching a, uh, an American presidential uh, race um, the way he was um, presenting himself. Um, and also, as Andrew said, I mean, they are obviously more covert and also potentially more um, important or more effective ways of influencing Ukrainian politics 
and, and what he described, um, the pressure on um, people close to, to Timoshenko, is of course that there's a possibility that she will um, start or another attempt to reform the, the energy sector, um, and that is of course where a lot of the, um, the, the Russian business interests um, lie. So this is not necessarily only Kremlin politics, but of course um, Gazprom um, politics. But you didn't have to, to interfere with the elections per se to, to make, that, um, um, uh, make that very clear. I mean, it's not a surprise that um, I think it was two, two days after or maybe one day after the elections, uh, Ukraine was reminded of not having paid um, its, its gas this year. Um, so that's, um, um, that's not the timing, it's not a surprise, but um, sort of the means by which you remind a country of, of what kind of influences exist. Um, is, uh, have changed or um, changed back. Maybe. In terms of the uh, question about transatlantic integration, I think um, as a bottom line, nothing much will change. I think um, it's a misrepresentation of Ukraine to constantly say, well, what does this result now mean for its relations either with Russia or with the West? So I think by now Ukraine has reached a stage and it's obvious to everybody in Ukraine and should be obvious outside as well that it will always have to combine the two. Um, it is quite um, uh, noticeable that um, Yanukovych um, uh, became quite EU-friendly um, over the last um, few years and has not ruled out EU membership. This might just be rhetoric, but um, uh, nevertheless, the, the rhetoric is no longer kind of posing one alternative um, um, against the other. Um, and the EU is, of course, um, less than enthusiastic um, when it comes to promising anything. And they will not have any need to promise anything soon. Um, as, as Andrew said as well, um, the political instability will continue in Ukraine. Um, with regard to NATO, that for the moment, I mean, the only change there is, but I think it's been actually long in the making and, and probably was almost deliberately overlooked by many Western observers. There is no consensus on, on NATO inside Ukraine, um, and uh, that has come to a halt, and nobody will push this in the, in the near future. And, but on the other hand, Ukraine is closely cooperating with NATO on many issues, but the issue of membership will not be, uh, will not be pursued. Actually, quick. Quick um, comment about NATO. Um, the, there was some talk, some justification, if you like, for um, the grand coalition that never was, or at least not yet, between regions and our Ukraine, um, that made the kind of uh, Nixon in China argument um, doubled up. That um, if you had that kind of historic compromise coalition, then... Uh, and, and regions could be persuaded to agree on a sort of moderately uh, less anti-NATO or even moderately pro-NATO in terms of practical cooperation line, um, then they could sell it to their half of the electorate in return for um, our Ukraine selling some kind of upgrade for the status of the Russian language to their half of the electorate um, in the Nixon and China way. Um, but until we get that kind of government um, there won't be that kind of politics. Okay, another question over here on the right. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. Uh, about the title of your uh, presentation, revolution, shouldn't it be in inverted commas? I mean, the lady touched on the problem that is a misnomer. I mean, it's a misnomer, all right, but how can you call an event revolution when you got uh, George Soros, billionaire, bankrolling all these events, then you've got the, the Catholic Church, countries like uh, Croatia, providing a 
camps for training of so-called electorates, all these orange tents provided by, bankrolled by Western capital, and in addition, how much do we know about the involvement of the Catholic Church? The whole event in uh, 2004 is reminiscent of Poland in 1980s, when Lech Walesia, the great Democrat, and now the documents have been declassified, he was in fact a puppet of the Vatican. The CIA was providing the capital. C could you ask, ask the question, please? Yes, the question is, what do we know about the involvement of the CIA in this orange revolution in inverted commas? Okay. It will be surprised if they are not there somewhere. Sorry, I cannot. I, don't, I'm, I cannot comment on the role of the, the Catholic Church um, in, in the events in 2004 or now. Um, but just, I mean, to respond to what you just said, I, I, I did say I think it's a misnomer. But then again, it's not the first time that an event gets named while it is happening. So I wouldn't be too too academic about this this um, kind of use of the term revolution. Um, but. I mean, that, of course, there was uh, Western money going in, and not just from um, uh, George Soros into um, uh, the events of 2004, but let's not forget the other side was also bankrolled from, from somewhere else. So, again, I would, although there we can see the influence um, uh, and also um, different um, funds coming in from different sides, um, we can see it more obviously, into, more, it's more obvious in 2004 than it was now, and it played a bigger role. But at the same time, it's, it, it also was not, in my view, decisive in 2004. Again, there were strong domestic reasons for what, what ultimately happened. Yep. Question on the left here. We'll take both these questions, please. Thank you. My name is Tatiana. I'm um, a student at C School of Slavonic Eastern European Studies, and I'm from Ukraine. Basically, I wanted to emphasize um, the pressure that would be uh, from Russian Federation later on. Could you please explain more? If the, orange, um, if the orange coalition actually emerges, what would be the um, consequences from Russian side? And of course there will be pressures, but um, is Europe ready to step in and maybe help, somehow, uh, help out somehow and maybe facilitate some trade conditions or something? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, was how exactly were the socialist and communist parties adversely affected by the Orange Revolution? Mem uh, mention was made of this, but could it be fleshed out a bit? And the, the issue of uh, East-West um, uh, Ukraine, are we in a situation where these differences are less important than, than they were, or is it still uh, a real problem for, for the country? And, how did Timoshenko's um, showing in, in the ele electorally um, in the different parts um, have an effect on, 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 on the situation? In no particular order, um, the middle question first, how exactly were the communist and socialist parties affected by the Orange Revolution? Um, it is the easiest to answer. Um, the Communist Party in Ukraine used to be stronger than the Communist Party in Russia in the 90s. Largely because um, it had, uh, there were two factors in its sort of coalition in support, of support. Yes, it was, um, uh, its electoral base was mainly amongst the elderly and nostalgic. Uh, but it also had a lot of proxy support from Russophone voters. 
So the real problem with the communists has been the rise of a party which more directly addresses uh, Russophone identity politics. Um, so the rise of the Party of Regions has left the communists without much of a political niche. Uh, the socialists um, ratted on their electorate. Um, they campaigned as an orange party in 2004 um, and in the March 2006 elections jumped sides and suffered the consequences um, despite an attempt to lever them into parliament at the last minute with some loaned votes in Donetsk. Um, I think this is thoroughly a good thing and a useful demonstration effect to the other parties uh, to pay more attention to their voters. Um, Russian, pressure. Russian pressure on orange forces, what form might it take? Well, it could take various forms and it, with a majority of only two, <laughs> uh, there are sufficient forms of um, economic and other pressure um, um, which we don't need to go into. Um, more substantively, can Europe act as a countervailing force? Well, the EU tends to do things the other way around. It, it waits for results and then um, moves. Um, so the EU is undoubtedly going to wait for the formation of a government and then for the renegotiation process for the action plan and um, PCA due in 2008 um, and almost certainly the EU will be too passive and not do much um, East-West divisions are they more or less important well valency actually is probably a, a better term to use uh, clearly these divisions are deep rooted and long term uh, but the degree of Valency or polarisation has varied with the type of campaigns that we've had in the last three elections. Uh, in 2004, there was a deliberate attempt by one side to exploit regional division, um, which was replayed to an extent in 2006. What's interesting about this campaign is that it was relatively short, um, so there wasn't much time to replay those themes until the very end of the campaign, the last two weeks or so. Um, but the American political consultants that Gwen mentioned had been uh, tutoring regions in soft-peddling these issues, um, regionalism, um, the role of the Russian language within Ukraine, um, the way that regions interact with foreign policy issues and so on and so forth, and had therefore been campaigning much more on its record in government. Stability and prosperity was its election slogan. Not necessarily a good one, but one that put those older issues to one side and as a result there was less regional polarisation in the election okay. Okay, um, Just a couple of remarks not on the small parties, I think Andrew explained that already really well um, in terms of this east-west um, division I mean, maybe a slightly, I would put it slightly differently I think there is um, sorry um, there, there is uh, obviously now greater uh, political polarization, and it still has a very clear regional dimension. Um, but uh, in, in some ways, it didn't seem as necessary to uh, 
um, sort of repeat all the familiar arguments about, um, in particular, language issues, ethnic issues, and so on. So I would really put the emphasis on that the political polarization has grown, um, but it's moved even further away than it already had been from any of these speculations of sort of east-west um, uh, divisions, potential splits, and so on. So it's, 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 it's a political issue within um, a by now quite established um, state. Um, in terms of the, the, maybe the data is interesting, on, on you hear about um, Timoshenko having made inroads into eastern regions. Um, we're primarily talking about Kharkiv, Odessa, and Nipopetrovsk here. And uh, she increased her share by about 4 or 5% in all of these. But she's still always around so 14, 16, Nipopetrovsk, her own home region, uh, about 21%. So that still leaves quite a gap. I mean, it's, it's noteworthy that... Uh, um, uh, she, she made certain inroads, but it's equally noteworthy that um, uh, Yanukovych, who also, um, however, not as much as Timoshenko, increased his, his um, uh, result compared to 2006. And if you look closely at the results, his share has also gone up almost throughout the, the entire country. So also in Western regions, however, only small, it's, it's a small increase. And he's actually also made a, has a, had a, a small loss of voters in his um, stable constituencies, for example, in Donetsk and Luhansk. So this is not overall significant in changing the balance who comes first or second in the regions, but I think it shows even more that there's a political polarization, and both in the West as well as the East, a vote for either side um, increasingly means, means, means something um, kind of possibly even stronger in, in terms of polarization. So you use it as a political um, kind of a statement are now more so than ever before. So not in that sense such a clear, clear division. Thank you. <clears throat> Question here from Roy. We'll take two questions again. Uh, we'll take these two and then these two finally. Thank you. It's a question about the process of competitive election monitoring which has been happening throughout the CIS region. I presume that there were both OSCE and CIS election monitors, and that if the party of the regions didn't contest the elections, then probably the CIS election monitors didn't, so, didn't do either. If, if that was the case, it would suggest that the purpose of this, uh, these CIS election monitors, this whole political purpose, <coughs> um, is one where they're used perhaps to try and uh, assist the falsification of election results, where done, uh, it's done... Uh, in a uh, uh, improper way in some of the CIS countries, but it's not being used to try and contest the results of elections which are done more properly. Um, do, do you know anything about the, the, the way in which the OSC and the CIS monitors view these elections and whether, in fact, we had for once a, uh, a more unanimity of opinion about them? And another question here. Hi, I'm, I'm Ellie and I'm a student at LSE as well. Could you uh, speak up, please? Sorry, I'm a student at LSE as well. Um, I would just like both of you maybe to go into a little more of the rivalry between uh, Timoshenko and Yushchenko because I think that following the Orange Revolution when they were both standing together and shaking, you know, hugging and everything to forming two separate blocks to now possibly having to, you know, resolve constitutional issues with one being president and one being prime minister uh, and then finally, what effect does this have on a possible resurgence of um, maybe Yanukovych, who's still you know, the strongest party, 
uh, in light of the next presidential election campaigns, which in, with the constitutional problems, you know, the campaigning may start sooner than, than the next few years. Okay, thank you. Um, sadly, Roy, I'll pass on the first question. Um, I read the OSC report, but the CIS election observers were quiet. Um, or at least I didn't, I didn't notice any, um, uh, any media impact that they had. Um, perhaps this was by, um, perhaps they were stood down, as you seem to be arguing, uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go in. I wouldn't want to venture too far into that. Uh, the second question, um, the kind of likely lineup for the next presidential election um, is in some ways an easier question than the, the sources of rivalry. Um, was that the first part of your question, as I understood it right? Um, how much of that is personal and how much of it is political? Um, well, put it this way, his people believe that her people um, deliberately chanted her name on his inauguration day, which is a pretty bad start. Um, and uh, whatever the two say, all of their short-term moves are moves in the greater game of the next presidential election. Um, it's highly unlikely that Timoshenko would not be a candidate unless... Um, a solid stint in the premiership was offered her in return for her not standing in 209. Uh, but Yushchenko really doesn't have the power to make that promise at the moment, given the math, maths in the RADA. Um, the three are likely to be the main candidates, but there are others around. Lutsenko, for example, um, has come out of the election strengthened, the former interior minister and head of uh, self-defense. Um, more interesting is probably, it, given the assumption that Yushchenko will run again, which is fair, uh, his health notwithstanding, um, in what political position would he run? Uh, if Timoshenko outflanks him, um, either as a populist or with um, the Orange electorate, possibly both. Um, there has been a lot of talk about him standing as a centrist uh, or even as the uh, agreed candidate of big business. Um, so with backing from um, the moderate wing of Party of Regions as well, uh, Mr. Akhmetov in particular. So there is, I mean, so Yushchenko will stand, but what kind of... Um, uh, policy position he represents is another question. Um, yeah, I also can't comment on the, the um, uh, CIS election monitors in detail, but I think we would have heard more if, if, if they had um, um, more to complain about. Um, I think what is important is I think both sides, now the Western observers as well as CIS observers going in seem to um, sort of just, just act as a some sort of um, safety mechanism um, and what I think has become uh, very Im important in between are um, uh, a, a considerable number of domestic observers who from b both sides of this political divide or several divides uh, however you want to see it 
and they've been um, already in the run-up quite um, um, vociferous, and I think also during, um, during the actual election. So I think actually probably that is, is where the actual um, check is really happening. And I suppose there were a few incidents like um, there was rather desperate ballot stuffing uh, on behalf of the Socialist Party once it became obvious they might not make the 3% um, uh, threshold. So all of a sudden, I think uh, one or two precincts were um, returning results of 50% for the Socialist Party. And I think that was just so blatantly obvious that that wasn't possible that it, it, it sort of cut through um, sort of other um, sort of potential um, um, complaints there or, or, or um, yeah, sort of politicking around that. In terms of the, the, the rivalry between Yushchenko and, and um, Timoshenko, I mean, it has to be something personal to it. I mean, I'll call it perhaps um, political immaturity because in 2006, I think that was the best chance for them to, to form a, a coalition and it didn't, it didn't um, happen. Um, I'm, however, not so sure about the, um, the lineup for 2009-10 for these presidential elections. Again, it seems that we're discussing Ukrainian politics always sort of from election to election. Sort of one election is just over, and again, it's, it's all about sort of the, the run-up to the next election. Um, and at least if there's no constitutional reform between now and then, the president's post um, no longer looks all that attractive, um, as Yushchenko found out um, last, last year. So I find it um, not so likely that Tymoshenko herself um, would run for that post if there's another option, um, trying to be prime minister at that point perhaps again, um, even if this um, next stint might be short as well. Um, and the same goes <coughs> for Yanukovych as well. Um, uh, but for Yushchenko, it's, of course, the best, um, in a way, the best option. Um, I mean, he doesn't really have any other options, so he has to hope for that, but his popularity remains as a, as a, as a president, as a person, low. I mean, the party gets so often, um, our Ukraine self-defense gets often equated with sort of Yushchenko supporters, but, I mean, that's not a, um, that's not a very uh, homogenous party in itself, and um, uh, so he might also find himself um, pretty soon without um, strong party base. Yes, I'm going to take a final question here. Um, hi, my name is Gergana Yankova. I'm a doctoral student at Harvard University. And um, my question is um, uh, related to what Professor Sasse said about the fact that a big part of these elections were conducted not as parliamentary but as presidential in the sense that um, a lot of the people voted not for the political programs of the parties, but for the personalities of the political leaders of the parties. And so um, my question is, how would you explain that personification of politics in Ukraine? And uh, again, going back to um, Dr. Sass's uh, um, lecture, um, what would that personification of politics say about the degree of democratic consolidation in the country? And the second question um, is related to um, the importance of gender uh, um, that has played in this politics. Um, do you think that the image of Yulia Timoshenko was sort of disadvantaged by the fact that she was a woman? You know that the states may soon have um, the first um, uh, candidate for a president who is a woman, and a lot of the fact has been, uh, and a lot of uh, noise has been made about her gender. And so the question is, do you think that uh, the Ukrainian voters are more ready to accept um, a woman leader? And what do you think that says about the degree of democratic consolidation again? Thank you. Okay, uh, the first point about the, the personalization of, uh, of, of politics. I mean, I think I, 
already made this point early on that I think the, 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 the Orange Revolution has something to do with that and enhanced that even. But, of course, before Han, Ukrainian politics was also already very personalized. So in that sense, it's sort of continuity and a few different actors um, appearing more strongly. Uh, I take that as a sign of, uh, sort of weak um, uh, consolidation, um, and I think one, one couldn't present it as anything else. However, I think um, as there are now kind of uh, political blocks emerging, I think it's not, we can't exclude the possibility that this could be the starting point for uh, more party consolidation than we have ever seen in Ukrainian politics up to this point. Um, and in particular, I think on Timoshenko's side, but possibly also the party of regions, I'm least convinced actually about our Ukraine self-defense. Um, so that's kind of probably an answer in two stages. Um, I'm not quite sure whether I caught it correctly. Did you say is Timoshenko disadvantaged or was she disadvantaged? Or because I would actually think it's, it, it played... Yeah, okay, I'm not sure whether I heard it right. I mean, she, she plays that card very well. Um, so I don't think I would like to buy into the argument that Ukraine is, has a, is a more gender-friendly um, political environment and find reasons for that. But she has, um, in particular also through how she has tied herself on how she, how she emerged from the Orange Revolution, um, she has been um, uh, very clever at presenting herself as this um, uh, yeah, revolutionary woman, and she's done so very successfully in the West. I mean, if you remember, she was in the West, in the Western media called uh, uh, Jean of Arc of, of Ukraine, and nobody seems to quite remember where her uh, political and economic background um, lies and why she is in the position that she is in now. Um, but she obviously plays on it very successfully, and I think it may for change, it sort of looks like something different. But I think if we look at, I don't know the exact percentage, but uh, generally female representation in the new parliament will, I think, only be very slightly higher than in the outgoing parliament, and that's around, I think, 7%. So that's certainly not a, not a very um, sort of good indication of um, female representation in politics. Uh, the first question about personalization of politics. Um, we, you're right. Uh, our Ukraine's campaign was criticised for not being personalised enough. That um, they had no central campaigning figure, uh, although uh, Mr. Lutsenko was prominent. Um, they were criticised for their abstract slogans, the main one being the rule of law for all, which is of course a good idea, um, but it was seen as having minimal impact with Ukrainian voters compared to the highly personalized campaign of the other two parties. Um, I won't really venture an explanation of that, but I don't think Ukrainian politics is particularly unusual in the region in being so polit uh, personalized. Gender. Um, I haven't seen any um, figures about gender voting for this election yet, uh, but there was some analysis of the last election which surprisingly or not showed that Timoshenko scored equally there's no gender difference at all in her vote um, but this was at uh, 22% um, whereas in a i.e. Uh, a quarter of the electorate whereas negatives might come in to a much greater extent in a, in a presidential campaign um, which may be uncharted territory to an extent. Um, but clearly the way that um, uh, Timoshenko uses gender and gender images is, is extremely interesting. Um, and not as... Um, well, it combines various gender 
themes in interesting ways, um, particularly her campaign slogan, this, this red heart, um, the idea that, which is obviously her, the uh, conscience of the nation, but in a feminine kind of way, I suppose. Um, uh, we shall see. Parliamentary politics are very different to presidential politics, and um, uh, gender voting may well be more significant in the latter. Well, I think we should conclude at this point. Uh, it's said that revolutions devour their children. Uh, it seems to me maybe Ukraine's an example where the children devoured the revolution. We've heard a lot of uh, very interesting analysis, but continuing pessimism seems to be the uh, ultimate conclusion. Uh, I'd like to thank both our speakers for uh, their um, fascinating uh, insights into Ukrainian politics post-election. Thank you. Just let me remind you before you go that the next Shapiro lecture will be uh, given by Sir Roderick Lyne, the former UK ambassador to Moscow, on 27th of November, and he will be talking about... Um, Russia post-Putin, uh, if there is a post-Putin, that is.